If you will, this morning, take your Bibles and turn me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. And I do know that the verses say 1 through 6, but we're not going to make it that far this morning. We will get through verses 3 and some of 4. In 19, I'm sorry, in 1872, a private meeting took place between two of the world's most famous at that time, present day evangelists, D.L. Moody and Henry Varler. When the meeting was over, D.L. Moody said that for over a year before him and Henry Varler would come, would see each other again, that his heart was overwhelmed and burdened by one statement that Henry had made. In their meeting, Henry said to D.L. Moody, he said, Moody, he said, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. Repeat that. The world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. Moody said that as he traveled back to the States, that that phrase, that line, that statement was written on the the very boards of the ship, on the walls of the city. He said it weighed upon him so much that he finally declared, by God's help, I aim to be that man. FBC, our world presently needs more men with this deep burden. It needs more men and, and women as well. But, but specifically, it needs more men with this type of burden. Men of conviction, men of boldness, and men who have a zeal for God. I would disagree with Henry Varler and say that there are men who, have consecrated, who are consecrated to God and we have seen their influence. I, I think sometimes we're always thinking on the grand stage like America's got talent. I think we see these types of men within our families and our churches at times. I know that we've seen men like this in our day, such as John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, and others. Men in other countries, on other continents, for example, over in Africa, Conrad Mwebe. He's called the Black Spurgeon. He was a man of great influence in his, on, his, in his, on his continent, who's done great and mighty things through Christ. Men who have passed on, such as Martin Lloyd-Jones and Martin Luther and John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and, and many, many more who have had lasting effects upon our culture and that we feel even today. These men have had, ha- had influences on so many, but there is one man that rises above all of them. And yes, I, we know that Jesus rises above all of them, but Jesus actually points out to another man. In Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. You see, dear friends, aside from Jesus Christ, we do have a historical record of a man consecrated to God, and we see the power and the influence of his ministry on the world. In Luke chapter 1 and 2, we had the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. But now as you and I are done with that, we move over to chapter 3. And you fast forward 30 years from where we left off. Or, 
or maybe 18 years from when Jesus was in the temple. But, but, but here we are, 30 years. We haven't seen John the Baptist since he was born. And so now here we are, 30 years later. And chapter 3 is, is really all about setting the stage for the ministry of Jesus. So Luke's going to take this entire chapter to, to prepare the way. If you remember in chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, that the angel told us, and he was just repeating what the prophet had said, that John the Baptist would prepare the way of Jesus' ministry. He would do so with his own ministry. And so Luke chapter 3, we're going to see the stage is being set as Christ is beginning to come to the, on the scene. And so as we walk through this chapter over the next several weeks, we're going to look at preparing the way. But I've entitled today's sermon, Preparing the Way, the Ministry of John the Baptist. Or maybe you could even call it the calling of John the Baptist. And my hope is is to look at the ministry of John as a model for the ministry needed within our own church today as we seek to influence the world around us. But not only that, I want this to be a, a call for men to stand up and do the work of ministry today as John the Baptist did. Would you, if you would, read with me this morning in our text, John, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetriarch of Galilee, we have the brother Philip, tetriarch of the region uh, of Ultrae uh, uh, and, and uh, Trachonius, and then we have Lysanias, tetriarch of, of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came to all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. I want you, if you will, to see three things this morning. I want you to see, within these three verses, I want you to see the timing, the call, and the method of John the Baptist. I want you to see the timing, the call, and the method of John the Baptist. And I want to begin there with the timing. We notice there in verse 1 and 2 that Luke has fast forward, as I said, 18 years from when we last saw Jesus in the temple, 30 years from since, Jesus, since John the Baptist and Jesus have been born. Caesar Augustus is no longer emperor of Rome. And this is very important that you, that you see and you understand this. What I love about Luke and his gospel is that Luke gives us the evidence, historical evidence for our faith. He, he gives historical evidence. He, he gives us times and places and, and all of this that we can say that we know that, that, that this took place. It's, it's, it's where we can, we can put our feet on. But there's more to this than just the historical accuracy and, and evidence of our faith. We see here that, that Tiberius Caesar is now reigning as emperor and he's been doing so in his 15th year. You see, in these two verses, we find not only Tiberius, but we find six other men. Six other men who held political and religious power in their day. This is the world's power structure, beloved. These are the people who were running, not, not just Judea, not just Jerusalem, Judea. This was the people who were, these were some of the people who were running the entire area. And then you have Tiberius Caesar who's running the world. Rome is in charge. Rome is in control of all things. You have Tiberius and then beneath him you have these governors such as Pilate was one. 
We have the tetriarchs who rule various regions. And we know that they came from the family of Herod. And then you see this religious power, this religious authority held by Caiaphas and, and Annas. Caiaphas was the official high priest of their day, but, but Annas was his father-in-law and the former high priest. And so he held great authority, so much that when Jesus is placed on trial, he has to go and stand before both of these men. You see, this historical information that we have on these men is not good Matter of fact, if you begin to do a little bit of background and do a little bit of reading and studying on these men, and, and we don't have time today for to go through every one of them, but just, just know that what history tells us about these men was not good. These were arrogant men. These were immoral men. Violent men. These were wicked, evil men. And if this is the case for the world leaders then one can only imagine that the surrounding culture that they governed was similar. Matter of fact, as one writer said, when you read this verse, your mind goes back to Job chapter 9, verse 24. The earth seemed to be given into the hands of the wicked. Does it ever seem that way to you? You ever just look around and you begin to wonder, has, has God just given the world over to the wicked men of our day? It's exactly what it seemed in the days of Jesus. An entire civilization, an entire civil and religious system that was corrupt and stood against the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be John, to be Jesus, ministering against this type of power structure? This was going, this was going to be an uphill battle for John. This was going to be an uphill battle for Jesus. For, for those who follow them, for good-natured people, good people who loved God, who loved others, who loved, who loved good, moral, who were moral, a good-natured person may despair at such a time, be discouraged, toss their hands up and say, there, there's nothing else we can do. They run everything. The wicked are in charge of everything And everybody loves them, and there is absolutely nothing that anyone who is is good-natured can do against such a a power structure. And this is what's so amazing that I see this, the irony of our day of people who want to complain about systems of power and oppression. Dear friends, we haven't seen nothing. Nothing. You have just been given a list of seven of the most oppressive men in all of the history of the world. And this is the moment and the time that John the Baptist was called. Do you despair, beloved? Do, do you turn on the media and, and, and get on the social media and the, read the newspaper? And, and do, you, do, the, do the stories that come across your phone, do you despair at what you see? Does it discourage you to know that we have a corrupt government and we are surrounded by nations with corrupt governments? That, 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 we, that we are led by men and women who love immorality. Who, who at one time, just, just go with me, at one time we had men and women who hid their immorality who led our country. They hid it. 
And if they ever got caught, they had to resign from the positions. But now we live in a world today where the men and women who lead our country, who lead our governments, they champion it. And they dare you to stand in their way. We are living in such a world today, beloved, that those that Christians are placed in positions where we have to vote the lesser of two evils when we go to vote. That's how bad it is. We actually champion men who are immoral to be our leaders because we know that they will lead us better than the ones than these other ones. That's how bad things are. And to make it worse, we have a culture this morning, or we have a culture surrounding us that is wicked and is evil. I don't know if you noticed, but June was the most dis- was the most demonic month that we have ever had in the history of our lives. People wonder where are the demons at. I mean, we talk about demon possession. We talk about all these evil things. We hear these stories of other countries, and we're like, man, we're Dear friends, it was on your screens this past month as men dressed as women in public schools dancing before little children. And Pride Week, these Pride festivals and and the debauchery and the evilness. Dear friends, that is demonic. And it was celebrated not just by leaders, but by the very businesses that we buy our food from. By the very services we pay for. And by pastors and pulpits. Or how about religious institutions that have become so lifeless at best and wicked at worst. Do you know that the internet has been filled with pastors this past, over the past couple of weeks who have preached against the overturning of Roe versus Wade and have just hollered and screamed and celebrated the right of women to abort their babies? And yet in our own convention, the very interim president of the ERLC signed a letter, signed a statement with other organizations such as Planned Parenthood that destroyed and killed the the abortion bill that came through Louisiana. At best, we are lifeless. At worst, we are wicked. And so the local church is, is that we want to be in the flesh. And so what happens is, is we want to despair and we want to be discouraged. And we just want to go, well, if you can't beat them, join them. Or just live out the rest of our lives and be quiet and let, and let us die and let the younger generation deal with that. Dear friends, let us not despair. For in the moment that life was at its worst and at its darkest, it was the perfect time to call forth John the Baptist. J.C. Ryle writes, at the very time when things seem hopeless, God may be preparing a mighty deliverance. At the very season when Satan's kingdom seems to be triumphing, the little stone cut without hands may be at the point of crushing it to pieces. The darkest hour of the night is often that which precedes the day. Dear friend, the ministry of John the Baptist came at the right time when the world was at its darkest, but when the gospel was at its brightest. Amen? It is when things are so dark that the gospel, dear friends, shines brightly to people and illuminates them and draws them to Christ. 
And this goes for us today, that the time is right for the local church to rise up and be the salt and light of the world. Dear friends, you are not to despair. You are not to be discouraged. You are not to join them. What do we do? You take your hands and you put them on the plow and you plow and you labor and John didn't go and labor. We're going to get to, he didn't go to the temple. He didn't go to Jerusalem. He didn't go to Rome. John labored in the wilderness. John labored in the wilderness, dear friends. And sometimes the local church, we feel like it is the wilderness. And we think the battle is somewhere else. But, but it's right here. And God uses the local church and the labor of men and women within the, their own local church to push back against the darkness of the culture. To, the, the local, he uses the local church to set captives free. J.C. Ryle continues. He says, let us work on and believe that help will come from heaven when it is most needed. In the very hour when the Roman emperor and the ignorant priest seemed to have everything at their feet, the Lamb of God was about to come forth from Nazareth, and he was to set up the beginnings of his kingdom. And what he did once, he can do it again. In a moment, he can take the church's midnight. And turn it into a blaze of glory. A blaze of noonday. Dear church, do not despair. Do not be discouraged at the times. The time is right. The time is right for for, for us as a local church to labor and to be the salt and light exactly as we were supposed to be. Which moves me into this next point. Notice the calling of John the Baptist. Because the timing was right. The timing was now for a man to come forth. 400 years of silence. And now God calls forth his prophet. Notice what it says. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. Now this is interesting. This is, this is Old Testament right here. Old Testament, Old Testament formula. The word of God came to then you have the Father's name. You see, the Old Testament had this formula for indicating a prophet. We see it with Jonah. We, we, we see it with uh, uh, Elijah and Elisha. We, you see it with all of the minor prophets, the major prophets, where you, you know, the Word of God came to them, and they are the son of so-and-so. This was a divine, this was a formula to indicate a man's call as a prophet of God to be his spokesman. And so this is important because for 400 years there has not been a prophet. There has not been anyone who has been called by God to go forth and to preach and to proclaim the will of God, and the word of God. But John has now received that call. And what happens is we look at this and we think, well, where is that man? And we want to look to like a Billy Graham or somebody. We want to look to a one specific man. And we look for that man to make a world of difference. But I want you to notice something about this calling upon John. The Greek literally reads it this way. The word of God came upon John. The word of God came from above and it came down upon John the Baptist. Now, I love what, what uh, J. Campbell Morgan says about this. Listen to what he says. He says, the force of the preposition upon 
is that of pressure from above. There's a pressure from above. He says, the word of the Lord came upon him and pressed down upon him from above. We don't know what form it came in, whether it was by angel or vision. But what we do know is, is that when it came, it came strong. And it developed within him a strong conviction that he was to go forth and to preach and to proclaim. It came strongly on him and he was convicted that the time was right. It weighed heavy on him. It moved him to go and to preach the word of God. Now again, J.C. Ryle says it this way. He says an inward call of man must have, a man must have, before he puts his hand to the work of the ministry, don't miss this, the word of God must come to him as really and truly as it came to John the Baptist before, it, before he undertakes to come to the word. In other words, what J.C. Ryle is saying, and don't miss it, he says the word of God must come to him. God must come to him, work in him first. God, God comes to John before John comes to the Lord or before John even goes out into the world to begin proclaiming. The word was pressed upon him. Dear friends, before John began preaching the word, John was under the ministry of the divine word of God. You see, FBC, before a man can be called, he must first be cultivated. He must first be prepared, which is exactly what was taking place in the wilderness. In Luke 180, we read that, and the child grew and became strong in spirit. He was in the wilderness until the days of his public appearance of Israel, to Israel. So notice that John was in the wilderness growing strong. Why was he in the wilderness? So that God would cultivate him, that God would train him, that God would prepare him. God was making John strong in the word, strong in prayer, strong in discipline, a bold man. But why wasn't John in Jerusalem like his father? Like his father, I mean, why wasn't John under the, the tutelage and the, dis, and, the, and the discipleship of a priest in Jerusalem. If he is such an important figure in, in Scripture, why is he not there? Because Jerusalem produced weak men. Jerusalem produced weak men. Now, ultimately, we know that John is not there because God is separating John from them. He's separating them and he's going to come and preach salvation through the repentance of sins and not through the law. We know that. But dear friends, there is is a part of this here that Jerusalem was producing men like Caiaphas. Not all of them were bad. We know John's father wasn't bad. But but there was hardly any men coming out of Jerusalem who had conviction from from the word of God. Men who were under the word pressed upon them. Men who had boldness for God, who were willing to stand and give their life to correct the the sinfulness and the lifelessness of their religion. John goes into the wilderness and he is prepared for a time that God may call him. Beloved, we need more men who are being produced and cultivated in the local church. I heard one of the most horrifying, terrifying statistics today, this, this past week. And to make this short, I'll just hit, go right to the point. 
I, I talked with one of the top leadership of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary this week. And in our conversation, we got off on some other things. And so as we were talking, I was informed that 25% of churches in the Bible Belt, and he said just, and we'll just, he, said, he named just really three states, but he said it's the Bible Belt. 25% of churches in the Bible Belt do not have pastors, nor can they find them. Well, immediately I want to go, well, wait a minute. I just heard from the convention how great things are. But before I could ever say anything, he went on and he said, we are producing missionaries and church plants at a high number, but we are sending out very few pastors. Did you hear what I just said? A quarter of the churches in the Bible Belt can't find pastors. That is terrifying. We are living in a day, dear friends, where we do not have John the Baptist in the pulpit anymore. And you want to know why? I could give you all kinds of reasons and things that I, I think are, but I'm just going to go straight to the point here. You want to know why we are not having these men in the pulpits? Because these men, because we don't have men with eternal conviction. They have no strength to lead a church through revitalization. They have, no, they have no strength to do the hard things. The reason why everybody wants to be a youth minister. And no one wants to be in the pulpit. Why? Why are these men, not, why do they not have strong, eternal convictions concerning the Word of God? Because the Word of God had not been pressed upon them. They feel no conviction. They feel no weight. And dear friends, that's our fault. And it is something that every local church should repent of. Because when our kids, when our little boys, when I came out of the nursery, we put them in children's church rather than under the preaching of the Word of God. And we told them they were too little to be in the sanctuary. And we told them they may, they may disrupt our worship. And so we put them somewhere else. And then when they got into the teenage stage, we said, well, if they're going to leave if we don't feed them pizza. And, 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 and so, you know, they'll be with us in the morning. So on Sunday nights, we'll put them in the youth room and we'll do pizza parties and we'll do this. We'll let them go to YEC. And that became the standard of preaching. A man in skinny jeans telling funny stories and sad stories. That became the very standard of, of, what a, of what a preacher was. And I remembered, I remember as a teenager going, that's what I want to be. That guy that I see every Sunday, I, that's just boring and dull. I don't want to be like the guy who fed me Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. I want to be like that guy. Not the skinny jeans, but the, but the other part of it. I want to be like that guy. And then when they got older and they had families... We told them it was okay that they didn't come to church. We told our men it was okay that they worked 60 and 70 hours a week and that they were not at church. Just send in your tithe. And so from the, from the moment they are young to the moment that they are leading families, They had no, they had never been pressed upon by the Word of God. 
The reason fewer men are in the pulpits today, dear friend, is because they were never in the pews. They were never in the Sunday school classes. They were never under the Word of God at home. And the timing for strong local church ministry is now. It is now. But we are scraping to find men like John to lead us. We're scraping to find men in our local church just to do just to do some of the, the, the labor, just do some of the ministry. We don't, you don't even have to preach. We just, we're scraping to find men who will lead their families and lead their communities and lead their churches. Because the Word of God was never pressed upon them. Dear friends, before they can be called, they must first be cultivated. Before they can be in the pulpit, they must first be in the pew. Before they can lead us to Jerusalem and to the temple, they must first lead us in the wilderness. So what do we need? Men, what do we need today? We need, we need churches that will press the word upon our men, upon our little boys. Our young men and our older men, we need the Word of God that, like John, that would come down upon them and it would press so hard upon them that they could not, they could not run away from it. They can't run away from the call. They, they, they can't run away from what God has called them to do. Because it's a conviction. It, it, to do anything else, it would, be, it would be utter defeat. It would be utter death to do anything but to lead the charge against the darkness and the sin, not only in the world, but in their own lives and in the lives of their family. We need churches and preachers who will preach the word. We need churches who will train them up. Because, dear friends, let me just say this, and I may get excommunicated from the SBC, but apparently our seminaries are not doing the job that we were told. We advocated our role in training men and gave it to the institutions when it was your job all along and my job to take men under our arms and show them what it means to be a good husband and a good father. We need our young boys and our young men under the Word of God in the sanctuary and in the Sunday school and at home Dear friends, we need to turn the televisions off. We need, to, we, need to, we need to turn out the junk of the world and stop letting the world press upon its ideals and its values and its messages upon our children. And we need to take the supernatural, divine word of God and press it upon them. And to do so as Israel did in Deuteronomy when they wake up in the morning and when they go to bed at night. When they're at home or when they're on the road. And we need older men to mentor and to befriend other men. Brothers and sisters, hear me. There are men here that you say, I can't, I'm incapable. I, I haven't had the word pressed upon me. Brothers and sisters, I will be the first to tell you that I am a weak man. I, there are days that I think, God, you have scraped the barrel with me. 
We all feel that way. But it does not cancel out the call to befriend other men and to walk with them and to share the word of God and to pray with them and to teach them and to help them through life. That they too may be good men. Dear friends, if we don't start now, we will never have men in our pulpits again. This is the reason why I believe, why I'm so thankful Brother Trey has, has been leading the charge and training and discipling men within our own church. And, and this is the reason why here at FBC, you need to know this, we, have, we, we issue a call that if there are men within our own community, within our own parish or whatever, and they are looking to preach, we invite them to come here. If, it's not, it, we're not stealing anybody. It's not, we're, we're not proselyting. It's not, but, if, but, if, but if people come and they say, man, we just want to learn. We can't go to seminary. We're, then come, come to FBC and, 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 be a, and, and come and be a good church member and, and we'll love on you and we'll walk with you through this. And you're, and you're beginning to see some, some, that happening a little bit. And I pray you see it even more, but, but, but we must lead the charge in this. Because if we want more Johns in the pulpit, then we need more Johns in the pew. If we want more John's call, we need more John's being cultivated in the wilderness. Men, it is time that you do one or the other. You must either begin now, no matter your age, to be cultivated by the Word of God. Or if you have been cultivated by the Word of God, it is now your responsibility to begin cultivating others. You've been called to cultivate others. This was the calling of John the Baptist, and it came from the word pressed upon him. But I must also show you the method. Notice that he says, and he came into all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance and a forgiveness of sins. What was he doing? He was preaching. And notice that he was preaching repentance of sin. John was telling people to turn from their sins. He was, you know, if we, we look ahead, we don't have time right now, but if you look ahead to chapter, uh, verse 7 through 14. And we'll get to that in a few weeks. If you look to that, you'll see what John was doing. He was calling out sin, and he was telling them that they need to repent of this and turn to the Lord. And so John declared that Israel was in danger. He told them, look, this is like, this is like a preacher going into a Baptist church and telling the preacher, dude, you're in danger of going to hell. He was telling Israel, the covenant people of God, y'all are in danger of the wrath and judgment of God. Stop sinning. Stop sinning and repent of your sins. The baptism he speaks of was unusual. It was the baptism of a Gentile becoming a Jew. So for a Jew to to, to enter into this this baptism practice here would mean that they were just as sinful and as bad as, as the Gentiles. But the baptism did not save them. Their salvation and our salvation is found in having faith in the one who would come after John, Jesus, who comes, as John would say, he comes not to baptize with water, but he comes to baptize with fire, with the Spirit. You see, water baptism is an outward sign of an inward transformation, an outward sign of an, inter- of an, of an inward baptism, a transformation that can only take place when one repents of their sins and believes upon Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's what John was doing. He wasn't doing purpose-driven life. John 
was preaching Christ as your only hope for salvation because you and I are sinners. He was preparing the people for Jesus by revealing to them their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. They needed a baptism that was greater than water. They needed a baptism that would change their heart and cleanse them of their sin. And dear friends, before I could go any further, I must tell you this morning that that salvation, that forgiveness of sins that John preached, hear me this morning, it is available to you today as well. You see, his audience looked forward to Jesus, but we look back. We look back to the perfect life, to the willing sacrifice and the, and the victory over the grave and his resurrection. We look back and we must come to terms that we are sinful people in need of a Savior that we are separated from God and we are destined to very much like John will say that the axe is at the, it's at the bottom of the tree, it's at the root and we're going to be tossed into the eternal flame, the eternal hell. But Jesus has come that he may save sinners. Repent of your sin. Believe upon Jesus Christ. Place your hope in, in your, salva- your salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone. Beloved, that is your hope. I would call you this morning that if you're an unbeliever to repent of your sins and come to him. But I also must say this, dear friends, not only is this the message and the method that is for our salvation as well, this is the, me- this is the salvation of others as well. They're, their only hope. Dear friends, we, pray, we preach the gospel Sunday after Sunday. And so if you have someone in your life that, is, that you know that is lost and is, and is bound and, de- and destined for hell, what better way to evangelize them than to bring them to church? Go and get them convince them pray for them labor that you may bring them into the church labor that you may bring your rebellious teenager into the church to hear the gospel labor that you may bring your lost friend your lost family member into the church to hear the gospel labor and bring your your lost co-worker in to hear the gospel the very power of salvation that came out of the ministry of john flows through dear friends the preaching the method not the man but the method of preaching and proclaiming the word we must never move away from this method we must never move away from the proclaiming the gospel proclaiming that people are sinners we must never substitute sinner for victim and we must never substitute hope and salvation in jesus for reparations and do this do that change structures never it is always christ and you need to repent and so therefore friends i would say to you this morning that we need this method of preaching now more than we ever have we need men who will stand in the pulpits i prefer the pulpit and not the table and proclaim to their people and to their congregation the gospel that, that brings the forgiveness of sin. We need local churches who are going to train men in the method of preaching. Formally and informally. Formally, we would say they are trained to preach in a setting like this. To proclaim the gospel. To exegete the text. To not always tell stories and, and things, but to exegete the text and, and to take that text and then apply it to our lives. We, we need men who can do that. But I also say this, we need people who can proclaim the gospel informally in settings such as your workplace, in your house, at Walmart, 
when you're, when you're on the golf course, when you're, when you're on vacation, men who, who know the gospel, who can who learn maybe the three circles or the Roman road, who can, per, who can present the gospel and proclaim to people their need of salvation in an informal setting. We need to train men and women. We need to train our children on how to do this. But dear friends, you must know, local church, that this is going to require much of FBC Jonesboro. It's going to require much of us. We're going to need to give men the opportunities to, to teach and to preach. and to, We're going to need men who are going to be willing to sacrifice time and, 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 and you know, their hobbies or whatever, that they may come and, and be teachable and make time to learn. John didn't come out the womb preaching. He had to go into the wilderness and learn. We need men who are going to learn. This is going to require our church to be, to be a place where men can come and learn. You're going to have to be encouraging to them, be an encouragement to them through prayers, through physical, and, uh, through, through physical attendance. Just being here is encouraging. Spiritual accountability. We all have a part in this. We all must work together to encourage one another that we may have more Johns in our world today. That we may have more Johns right here at FBC Jonesboro. This will require us to devote resources, time, money, energy to training men. I truly believe now more than ever that the vision of FBC in the future is to develop is developing right here, developing men. And this is going to require that we are together and unified and working together that we may raise up a godly generation. Because FBC, the time is now. And if you don't see it, then what happens when there are no Johns left? We need men. Maybe you're saying, Brother Brian, why is this so important? Why do we need men to be teachable and men to give of themselves in the ministry? And why do we need to help that? Why do we need to, to serve and labor for that? I close with this. It is a poem that, was, that I heard read at the funeral of Ed Lacey. Written by George Liddell. Dear friends, listen to this poem. Give me a man of God. One man, whose faith is master of his mind, and I will right ten thousand wrongs and bless the name of all mankind. Give me a man of God, one man, whose tongue is touched with heaven's fire, and I will flame the darkest hearts with high resolve and pure desire. Give me a man of God, one man, one mighty prophet of the Lord, and I will give you peace on earth, bought with prayer and not a sword. Give me a man of God, one man, true to the vision that he sees, and I will build broken shrines and bring the nations to their knees. Give me one man. Dear friends, we know the difference that one godly man can make. 
Dear friends, we need more. And the time is now. And we as men and we as a church need to rise up, as D.L. Moody said, stand and say, by the help of God, I aim to be that man. I aim to train, to cultivate, and to prepare these types of men. Let's pray.